Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, which can be found at americansongwriter.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to help support Songcraft while accessing bonus content and rewards, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You can also keep up with us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com, where you can check out our episode archive and sign up for our email list. You're listening to Snake Farm, which was written and recorded by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Ray Wiley Hubbard. The Americana Music Association award winner and inductee into the Texas Heritage Songwriters Hall of Fame will join us in a bit to discuss his career and the stories behind songs such as Up Against the Wall Redneck Mother, The Messenger, Screw You Were from Texas, Desperate Man, which he wrote with Eric Church, and his new star-studded album. Part One well, Scott, for um, anyone that didn't listen to our bonus episode uh, a while back, first of all, uh, why wouldn't someone listen to our bonus episode? I, I shouldn't even have to do this. Yeah, right? Come on, people. Yeah, but just just for those of you who have had other things to do, uh, we want to let you know that we are now a part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network. Yeah, very cool. Uh, they came to us, asked us to be part of their new podcast network we jumped at the chance uh we are now a part of uh, a group of a number of podcasts um that are gathered together under the umbrella of american songwriter um if you're not familiar with american songwriter magazine that's just uh one part of of this great empire that they're building online now with amazing content about songwriters fantastic interviews insights to songwriting uh there really isn't a better partner that we could uh, align ourselves with in terms of our mission and, and their mission being so similar. So this is episode number 144 of Songcraft, but it is our first official episode as part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network. So that might mean some of you guys are hearing us for the first time. Welcome. Uh, we're really happy to have you be part of the show with us and um, hope you'll enjoy exploring some of these great interviews and, and stories with some of the world's great songwriters. And we really never thought we'd get past episode 137 i mean i i that sort of <laughs> felt to me like a, a benchmark that that we might never hit but but here we are here we are who would have thought we'd had it in us <laughs> um but yeah so uh super excited um for anyone who's coming for the first time please take a minute to to check out uh the other 140 something episodes uh I, I promise that you'll find something in each one of them to like <laughs> Or at least we can promise that among them you'll find at least one episode that you like. I think that that's fair to say. I mean, it's less than 1%. Yeah. So, yeah. Sure. Um, we are new in our relationship with the American Songwriter uh, Podcast Network. We still have those fluttery feelings of young romance. You know, we've just gotten together <laughs> with these guys, and uh, and and you know, it's awesome. New love is is so special and amazing. Um, but. We also have a long-term relationship that uh, that we don't want to neglect uh, at the same time, and um, that is our longtime uh, sponsorship 
from Pearl Snap Studios based in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, I mean, our longtime listeners are, are quite familiar with who Pearl Snap is and what they do. But, but for those of you who are just finding out about them, Pearl Snap Studios uh, is an operation run out of a little town called Nashville, Tennessee. And what they do is you write a song and you can send it to them in any kind of format, just an iPhone recording, an MP3 or whatever you happen to have. And they turn it into a professional studio quality pitchable demo um, that you can be completely proud of. It's uh, absolute superior commercial quality. And um, we've had a lot of listeners that have actually gotten a lot of work done with Pearl Snap. Yeah, if you go to pearlsnapstudios.com, uh, you can find out all about what our friend Justin and his team are doing there. And if you decide to uh, give it a shot, it doesn't matter where in the world you live. You do not have to be present to win. You can send him that recording, as, as Paul mentioned, and he uh, and, and his crew will do their magic. Um, and the really cool part is if uh, you are a first-time customer at Pearl Snap and you heard about them on Songcraft, let them know, and you even get a, a discount, which is great. Yeah, as a matter of fact, there's actually a discount code uh, and you just use the word songcraft that's simple enough right you guys can remember that that's a really good um, code I think it makes a lot of sense I think it does too I mean I, I went back and forth on it uh, the first time I heard it I was kind of like oh wow uh, yeah why'd you pick that I wanted but, the the word to be Scott but uh, songcraft is good yeah um, starts and ends with the same letters I figure so um, <laughs> I, I think that's why they went with it um, but we are we are proud of our association with Pearl Snap Studios and happy to see that continuing and uh, happy to hear the music they continue to make for you. And before we get on with the show, just a little bit more housekeeping. Uh, you heard us mention at the top of the show, Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com patreon.com slash songcraft show. Uh, Patreon is a way that people who listen to the show can help support us. If you believe in our mission of preserving and presenting these interviews with songwriters of various genres and eras, um, we're kind of like the public radio model here. You can listen for free all that you want to, but, uh, every now and again, we have our little member drive, which is to say we encourage people to get involved and help support us and, and help keep the lights on at songcraft so that we can keep bringing you these interviews. Um, and if you do, you can get some bonus content. You can get some cool swag. There's some, some, uh, little, uh, incentives there for you to, to help support uh, songcraft with your hard earned dollars. We don't bring this up to, uh, to guilt anyone about it. We, we always welcome all listeners, but we do have a, a small group of, of dedicated supporters who help really make this possible. And, um, in fact, we're going to be posting some exclusive bonus content from today's episode uh, on Patreon. So if you uh, love the interview that you hear today and you want to hear even a little bit more, uh, you can check out Patreon and uh, sign up to help support us and get uh, even more great content from today's conversation. Part two. Well, as we do from time to time here on Songcraft, we wanted to take a moment to... Uh, to honor some notable songwriters uh, who have have passed recently. Um, many of you may already know that Ennio Morricone, um, the famous uh, film composer, um, just passed away. And, you know, it's funny, I, I tend to, to come at these different writers and composers with sort of my own experience and, and what their music has sort of meant to me. Um, and beyond just sort of knowing what I'd heard of his work from the old spaghetti westerns, you know, the Clint Eastwood stuff, um, you know, he wrote the soundtrack to the mission or the, the score to the mission. And I remember being in college and just hearing that music pour out of everyone's rooms. For whatever reason, that was an inspiring 
piece of music. <laughs> it was one of those themes that I kind of couldn't get away from. And uh, then now, uh, my wife is one of the world's biggest Metallica fans. And I don't, I don't know if you know this, um, but they use a piece of Morricone's music as their intro theme every time they come out. I did not know that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, thanks, kind of, thanks to your to your uh, wife. I know that you have then had the opportunity to hear that uh, opening from Metallica many times in the double digits. Many, many times. <laughs> um, very close to the stage, uh, pounding through my earplugs. Nice. Uh, so, I, I mean, obviously, my connection to that music is a much, much uh, smaller part of, of who he was than anyone needs to really care about because he was uh, a giant of the film and composing industry. Yeah, it was really those uh, Sergio Leone films once upon a time in the west and the good the bad and the ugly and that stuff that really put him on the map but uh, i think he did like something like over 400 scores for film and tv which is just amazing and it wasn't until tarantino's hateful eight that he actually won a um an academy award for uh one of his scores and you know that was just in in recent years the man had a remarkable career um he died uh, in rome on july 6th and he was 91 years old um and and i think working right up until the end which is uh you know pretty remarkable yeah i mean if if you look at it you know 400 I mean, even if you look at that over the span, let's say let's say a 50-year a career, you're looking at like eight a year? Is that is that how I'm looking? I mean... I'm not good with the maths, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, just amazing. Um, another person that we actually lost the same day, uh, July 6th, um, is Charlie Daniels. And... Um, Charlie Daniels uh, and Ennio Morricone are probably not uh, often mentioned in the same breath. Um, very different genres of music. Um, but Charlie Daniels uh, is probably best known. Well, not probably. Charlie Daniels is best known for The Devil Went Down to Georgia. Um, but there was a lot more to, to Charlie Daniels' career than that. He um, actually wrote a song called It Hurts Me that Elvis recorded all the way back in 1964. Uh, Charlie played bass on three Bob Dylan albums, Nashville Skyline, Self-Portrait, and New Morning, um, all of which were cut in Nashville by a producer named Bob Johnston, who was a good friend of Charlie's and, in fact, is the guy that Charlie wrote uh, It Hurts Me with uh, that Elvis cut. Um but Charlie really came out as a solo artist in the early 70s and uh, people who um, listen to classic rock radio of a certain era will remember songs like Uneasy Rider and The South's Gonna Do It Again and Long Haired Country Boy. What's interesting is that all of these songs are probably kind of thought of as country music today, but none of them charted uh, on the country charts. These were all pop and rock hits. Um, and then once The Devil Went Down to Georgia came out in 1979, that went to number one on the country chart. It went to number three on the pop chart. Um, after that, Charlie Daniels kind of became known as a country artist. And I think that Charlie Daniels and Hank Williams Jr. are the two people who are most responsible for the direction that country music took in the 1980s, which was actually just fusing Southern rock yeah. and country music together. And it set it off on a whole new path that, you know, came to fruition with like Brooks and Dunn and, and Gretchen Wilson and, you know, this whole stream that that flowered in the in the 90s and early 2000s and has continued on to today. Um, I don't think you can underestimate how much impact those two guys had on the direction of um, country music For sure. uh, now. Um, and kind of pioneered the 
cowboy hat and sunglasses combo. Very big in the in the cowboy hat sunglasses beard combo. That was a very I forgot uh, the beard. Very key. Yeah, key, you gotta have the beard. You can't just be standing there with sunglasses and a hat and no beard. You know, can that's, I just that's not throw this out? This may be a controversial take, um, but I've always felt in the devil went down to Georgia that just from my perspective, the devil won. Like uh, <laughs> Johnny somehow, you know took the golden fiddle and and walked away with the title but to me just looking at those two pieces of music back to back uh i think the devil should have taken that one well uh ray wiley hubbard would agree with you he's got a line in uh in one of his songs where he dies and goes to hell and has a conversation with the devil and compliments the devil on his fiddle solo and always says he liked his fiddle solo uh better than than johnny's fiddle solo and the devil went down to georgia i agree the devil's fiddle solo is more interesting yeah. uh so y- you might be onto something there um but uh, speaking of Ray Wiley Hubbard, who is our, our guest on today's show, um, talk about a guy who has had uh, an enormous influence. Ray Wiley Hubbard is a guy who has been um, a really important uh, shaping force on much better known contemporary country songwriters, people like Rodney Crowell and Eric Church, um, who have been inspired by uh, Ray Wiley Hubbard. So I was excited to to have Ray Wiley Hubbard as a as a guest um, on our show for this episode um, because he's a guy that it, his influence has been felt, but he's like a songwriter's songwriter. He's a guy that's not as as uh, known um, outside certain circles, but, uh, he's a guy where there's a lot of depth and dimension to, to what he does. And it's important to, to put that spotlight on him. Yeah. I mean, in a way, I kind of think that's why we exist as a podcast, you know, uh, to, to shed light on some of those guys who are important, but maybe not as well known to the, to the general listening public. Well, I'm glad you pointed that out, Paul, because I've actually been wrestling recently with why do I exist? (laughs) Uh, well, who's winning? (laughs) Uh, it's hard to say. But, uh, you know, in quarantine during this time of coronavirus, there's a time for a lot of reflection and, and uh, thought. So yeah. I've been having an existential crisis. Thank you for uh, for picking that scab. Yeah, no problem, man. Uh, let's let's go ahead and make it worse. And let's just go to do I exist? <laughs> let's, let's drop the Y. <laughs> um, OK, so the, the thing about Ray Wiley Hubbard is that he is part of a long and proud tradition of Texas singer songwriters and uh, Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top who uh, has been uh, a guest on this show before. He once told me in a previous interview that I did with him for a book I was working on, he said, Texas is part of the South, but it's also its own country. And uh, that's a great description (laughs) of Texas. There is a Texas, everything's bigger in Texas. There is a Texas uh, uh, attitude and a Texas songwriting world that has given us some amazing poets like Towns Van Zandt and Guy Clark. And since we... Um, since we have uh, probably some new listeners, thanks to our new association with the American Songwriter Podcast Network, um, I thought I'd just briefly mention um, a few of the legendary Texas songwriters that we've had before on the show. This is certainly not all of them. You'd have to look through our, our archives to see them all. But I thought probably the most Texas of all the Texans we've had on the show, Kinky Friedman. The, the most Texas of all the Texans. That's, I'll just, I'll, just uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll back that up. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Robert Earl Keen, um, another great episode that, that another great guest. That also we've had. quite Texas. Very, very yeah. Texas. Um, and then we've had uh, Steve Earl, which was 
fantastic. Uh, I'm sure you remember we went and uh, interviewed him at a hotel here in Los Angeles. It was amazing. Yeah the, yeah, the the one guest that we ever had to say, hey, would you take off one or two of your bracelets? <laughs> Don't forget Melissa Manchester, my friend. Oh, the the only, also the most Texas of all Texan songwriters, <laughs> Melissa Manchester. Right. <laughs> but, Wait, uh, no. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Tom Russell, Rodney Crowell, Sean Colvin, Mac Davis. Mac Davis was great. Remember we went to his house? Oh, man. Yeah, and he showed me how to play in the ghetto. Yeah, he showed you the guitar lick, and you were sitting there, and you looked like a kid that had just been turned loose with a thousand dollars in Toys R Us. Yeah, still haven't washed my hand. <laughs> That's where the COVID's coming from. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> too soon. <laughs> but yeah, Radney Foster, uh, Mark James, known for Always on My Mind, and can I can I just point out all of these names, and, and it may just be because they loom so large in songwriting mythology. But these names sound like stage names. They, they're such good names. Right. You know what I mean? Like Robert Earl Keen. Yeah. Sean Colvin. Yeah. Well, I, I think gr- perhaps the greatest stage name of, of all time might be Ray Wiley Hubbard. Um, so we are pleased to uh, add another great Texas legend to uh, just one slice, just one of the branches of what Songcraft is. We highlight a lot of Texas songwriters, but a whole lot of other genres too. So um, welcome to all the new listeners. Uh, we hope you enjoy this interview with Ray Wiley Hubbard and then go check out some of our others uh, with some of those folks that we mentioned as well as pretty much any other genre or era you can think of. We're glad to have you and and uh, appreciate you being a part of the party. And next week uh, or next episode, look forward to our profile of our top 10 favorite Rhode Island songwriters. <laughs> <laughs> part three. Ray Wiley Hubbard first came to prominence when Jerry Jeff Walker recorded his Up Against the Wall Redneck Mother in 1973. After getting sober, Hubbard reinvented himself as a master songwriter, pinning modern-day Texas classics such as The Messenger, Conversation with the Devil, Screw You, We're from Texas, Snake Farm, Drunken Poet's Dream, Tell the Devil I'm Getting There as Fast as I Can, and Desperate Man, his collaboration with Eric Church. The long list of artists who've covered Hubbard's songs includes Willie Nelson, Lucinda Williams, Waylon Jennings, Bobby Bear, Radney Foster, Rodney Crowell, James McMurtry, Hayes Carl, Sammy Hagar, and Cracker. He's been honored by the Americana Music Association and was inducted by Church into the Texas Heritage Songwriters Hall of Fame. His latest album, titled Co-Starring, is available now on Big Machine Records. It features guest appearances from Ringo Starr, Joe Walsh, Don Waz, The Cadillac Three, Ashley McBride, Larkin Poe, Chris Robinson of the Black Crows, and others. Snake Farm, it just sounds nasty. Snake Farm, it pretty much is. Snake Farm, it's a reptile house. Snake Farm. Ray, welcome to Songcraft. Well, thank you very much. Very, uh, very honored to be here. Absolutely. It's great to, to speak with you. Um, you know, your first couple of records were released by major labels in the 70s, but you really began building your career as we know it in the 90s with a, a series of more than a dozen independent releases and, and really kind of carved out a, a, a space for you as this Texas songwriting legend and now here you are age 73 
You got a new album called Co-Starring, but this time we're looking at Nashville's Big Machine Records. And, and that's for those who might not know, a company that's put out records by Taylor Swift, Garth Brooks, Tim McGraw, Reba McIntyre, Sheryl Crow. I mean, this is this is like a very mainstream <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. Um, it, it seems like a really surprising, although very cool move uh, on the part of the label. How did this unlikely partnership come about? Well, it would surprising to me too uh as you say i've, I've done uh, a lot of you know my, the first couple of records i did on major labels uh they didn't quite work for me because uh I, i'm not a very mainstream writer hmm. you know and so i was pretty uh you know i came up in folk music and so i, I uh so that didn't work for me but then i uh uh somewhere in there and when i was 41 i got clean and sober with the help of uh of a guy named stevie ray vaughn uh, actually took the time to uh, help me get in recovery. Hmm, wow. And uh, and so uh, uh, somewhere in my 40s, I kind of made this conscious effort. I wanted to be a real songwriter yeah. and try to uh, uh, write songs that had a little depth and weight, but also if they were humorous, would be well-written, <laughs> yeah. I suppose. So I started, uh, I did a lot of independent projects. Just uh, I did some with Rounder. And then uh, with uh, 30 Tigers on her own label. And this, the, the, the thing about co-starring, really how that happened, it wasn't anything I really planned. I just uh, had met a, a bunch of wonderful musicians and songwriters. And I just called them up and I said, hey, man, I got this song. Would you want to track it with me? I think one of the first ones I did was Cadillac 3. They'd call me up and ask me to open some shows. So I met those guys. So I had a song. And I said, man, you want to track? So they said, sure. Then I ran into a young rock guy, uh, um, you know, Tyler Bryant, and I said, hey, man, you know, and he said, I got a little studio. So we went to his place and got with the shakedown and recorded that and then went with Lark and Poe. And so I, I kind of just had all these tracks. And then the way I got the big machine is my son would work for Gibson Guitars, and they had the big NAMM show. Right. And so we went up there and did a, a set with uh, Aaron Lee Tatchin and Leroy Parnell. And uh, I met a fellow named Julian Raymond there, who was kind of a, you know, kind of a co- co-host. I mean, putting it together. Right. He said, "What have you been doing?" I said, "Well, I made this record with all these cats." And he said, "Well, I'd like to hear it." So I sent him a link, and he said, "Well, do you mind if I play this uh, for Scott Bruschetta?" And I said, "Really?" And he, he said, "Yeah." I said, "I, I, I do A and R for a big machine." So I said, "Sure, go ahead." And then he called me up and said, "Scott, I'd like to talk to you about." Uh, putting this album out hmm. and um so that's you know how the thing kind of happened we went up there and met scott and he said i really like this record and i said well you know i'm kind of an old folk blues roots cat you know and i don't sell a lot of records so i really have i've been a fan of your songwriting for a long period of time and hopefully we can remedy that <laughs> <laughs> and sell a few records nice so uh it was and I said, well, the record, it's already done. I'm not going to, you know, do anything else to it. He said, nope, we want to release it just like that. Very cool. Well, let's go back to where it all started. I understand you were born in Oklahoma, but moved to the Dallas area with your family when you were around seven or eight years old. And your records, they reflect a lot of influences from blues to rock to folk to honky-tonk. So I'm really curious about what kind of music you were soaking up in your formative years that had an impact on shaping who you would become as a musician and songwriter? Uh, 
AM radio, you know, growing up, of course, there was the country station where you get, you know, Hank Williams and Lefty Brazil and, right. and Ernest Tubb and all that. And then there was the AM rock stations, of course, you know, with Elvis. But then I always kind of went with Gene Vincent and huh. Link Ray and some of these kind of, you know, a little, I don't know, just had a little more dirt on them, you know. Right. Yeah. And then in high school, I went to high school uh, with Michael Mur- Murphy, who is now Michael Mark Murphy, a great <laughs> songwriter. And he was he was the first guy that, I, that at an assembly came out and said, here's a song I wrote. And uh, I guess I was a sophomore, and I went, a songwriter? That guy's a songwriter. And so I got a guitar and kind of started messing around. And so I fell into the folk scene there in, in Texas. There was a really good folk scene in, in uh uh, you know, with Town Sanzant down in Austin and all these, uh, uh, you know, just uh, folk groups, the Kerrville Folk Festival. So I was running with, uh, you know, the folk guys. But then there were some shows there where I feel very honored. I mean, I feel very lucky to have seen Lightning Hopkins and did a, you know, open for him at some funky little club in Dallas and then, and, and, and saw Mance Lipscomb and Freddie King and then, uh, so, uh, you know, and then and in my 40s, after I got clean and sober, I said, I really want to learn to uh, play acoustic blues, that, that John Lee Hooker dead thumb thing. Yeah, That's kind of where I really started to actually kind of, uh, I guess, start having a, like a career in a way of, you know, having that foundation in folk music where the lyrics are so important. Right. But then laid it on just like a, a, a groove. Yeah. So it it's just it, it's where I feel really comfortable. Hmm. After you saw uh, Michael Martin Murphy in, in high school there, and and realized like or were struck by that idea of of writing songs, do you remember anything about the the first song you ever wrote? I remember it's pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, uh, not really. Uh, gosh, I I can't really remember the, the exact first song but i got a little folk group called three faces west and we went up to red river new mexico right out of high school and we opened a little coffee house and uh and it was really all the the songwriters from all from texas would go to colorado and all the colorado guys would stop off there you know guys like jerry jeff walker and of course murphy and bw stevenson a great songwriter and so uh we were just uh you know, I kind of got into some songs, and I actually wrote a song called uh, Muddy Boggy Banjo Man, <laughs> which was actually a million seller wow. because it was the B-side of Junk Food Junkie by Larry Gross. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, Junk Food Junkie was, you know, a big novelty song by Larry Gross, and for some reason he put Muddy Boggy Banjo Man on the flip side. <laughs> Muddy Boggy Banjo Man. Let me dance till my legs won't stand Right around this here country that's known as free Later on tonight the people here might see Muddy Boggy Banjo Man stayed alive with me And so that was one of the first songs I wrote, which was basically, you know, a folk song. Well, your real breakthrough as a songwriter came when Jerry Jeff Walker released his live version of Up Against the Wall, Redneck Mother in 1973. Tell us how that song came together and how Jerry Jeff ended up covering it. In Red River, New Mexico, which I mentioned, there was a 
we used to kind of get together each night after we, our little coffee house closed. We'd have these, you know, little, you know, back in the days, I think they called them hootin' annies. But, right. uh, uh, you know, we'd have these little jam sessions. And Red, Red River at that time, there was a, you know, if you had long hair, there was a bar there called, uh, I think, the D-Bar D-Bar, that if you had long hair, you didn't go in there. That was the hardcore redneck bar. Hmm. So anyhow, one night it was my turn to go get the beer, so I didn't want to go down to the safe hippie musician bar. So I walked in the D bar D, and I walked in there, and I think as I walked in, Merle Haggard's fight inside of me was on. And there was about 40 of these old boys and one old woman, and <laughs> the song stopped, and I went up there and said, I'd like a case of beer, and and uh, it was a pretty tense moment. Right. And the woman kind of just you know looked at me and said, how can you call yourself an American wearing long hair like that? And I said... I don't remember calling myself American. I remember asking for a case of beer, and it was a, <laughs> kind of a, she didn't find any humor in that. Right. So I mean, there was a little tense moment there, but anyhow, I got the beer, and I walked out, and there was a pickup truck there with Oklahoma plates and a gun rack and a bumper sticker that said, goat ropers need love, too. So I went back to the jam session. I walked in. I said, boys, I almost got beat up in that bar over there, and so I think it was B.W. Stevens or somebody. It was your turn to sing, so I picked up a guitar and went, he was born in Oklahoma, his wife's name, and I just went, Betty Joe or Delma Liz, I can't, you know. And then, So I kind of wrote the song. There at that hootenanny that night was a guy named Bob Livingston. He left, and he went to L.A. and started playing bass with Michael Murphy. Then he started playing bass, went to Austin, started playing bass with Jerry Jeff. So one night at the Broken Spoke Saloon in Austin, Texas, uh, Jerry was playing, and he broke a string. In those days, they didn't really have roadies. Jerry right. said, Bob, sing a song. Yeah. So Bob sang the song up against with the wall redneck mother song I made up on the spot there. <laughs> and uh, Jerry said, you know, the people kind of stopped dancing, and, and it was full of, you know, kind of redneck people, hippies or whatever, and they started singing along. So Jerry said, well, I'm going to learn this song. So they went to Lukenbach, Texas, and they were going to record a live record. And then Bob called me up and said, Jerry wants to record Redneck Mother. And I said, you're kidding. <laughs> he goes, no. I said, but we, you know, because we just had the first verse and the chorus, and it would make up stuff, you know. Right. And uh, so, he, so he said, we need a second verse. So I looked and said, I looked at what I was drinking and said, well, he sure likes to drink Falstaff beer. <laughs> it doesn't say a lot for me at the time. But... uh I kind of wrote the second verse over the phone, and then they recorded it. And that's Bob Livingston at the beginning of the of the song. He goes, "This song is by Ray Wiley Hubbard," and Jerry left it on the record. You know, the wow. record label said, "We don't want you know people are going to think that's Ray Wiley singing this song." And Jerry said, "I don't care." So they left it on the record. This song is by Ray Wiley Hubbard. That's, wow! That's so awesome. not only did Jerry Jeff record the song, I got a middle name. <laughs> I mean, I'd just been Ray Hubbard up to then, you know. Right. When the record came out, um, I became Ray Wiley Hubbard. Wow. This song is by Ray Wiley Hubbard. He was born in Oklahoma. And his wife's name is Betty Lou Thelma Liz.
people ask me the most important thing about songwriting, and since this is songcraft, they have to say the most important thing about songwriting is right after you write a song, ask yourself, can I sing this for 40 years? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do that. <laughs> Just did it, you know. Right. A prison of your own making. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, and and for a long period of time, that was the only song I was known for because I wasn't making records and I wasn't doing anything. Yeah. It was it was kind of a, you know, it, it fits good in the arsenal now because, you know, I pull it out every now and then. and But I've got enough songs now with... Uh, that it fits and I can do it. But mm. as being that's the only song I was known for at the time, it was, you know, <laughs> wasn't that great. <laughs> <laughs> well, in uh, 1976, Warner Brothers Records released your debut album, Ray Wiley Hubbard and the Cowboy Twinkies. And, you know, I, I understand that one didn't come out the way that you hoped. Uh, talk about the, the roller coaster of kind of, you know, getting the record deal, making the album, but then being unhappy with the finished product. Well, we, we in Austin at that time, everybody was getting record deals. Willie moved to Austin, Jerry Jeff was there, Michael Murphy, B.W. Stevens, and Rusty Weir. Every, you know, and there was this whole progressive country thing. And we had made a record there at Pecan Street Studios that got us some record off. We actually got a record off from Frank Zappa's label, Discreet, and uh, Atlantic, and... Uh, and we said, we, everybody said, we love this record. And we said, we'll put that record out. And they go, no, it's, you did it on an eight track. We got to do state of the art. And so uh, we went with a Warner Reprise and with a deal that we would take the band to Nashville and record it. And that way we would have the same musicians, but then we would have better quality. You know, the, the, it would be better because we'd be using state of the art. So we went up there, we made the record. And then I think what happened was is they took it to uh, the, the people there in Nashville, and they went, well, Country Radio's not going to play this. This is like a folk rock record. So they put girl singers on it and steel guitars on every track to try to uh, uh, you know, make it radio commercial so radio could play it. Yeah. So when it came out, it wasn't the record that we had, uh, you know, we... we couldn't it, it didn't feel right you know it was just like oh man that's that's not us because we were cowboy twinkies even with that name you can tell we had a pretty bad attitude <laughs> you know right. we uh we you know in our live show we had a bunch of original songs but in our live shows we would do zeppelin and you know and and uh merle haggard with uh hendrix feedback <laughs> right we had a pretty bad attitude but uh, so that record was disappointing to us. We couldn't quite. And so anyhow, my, I called up my lawyer, and I said, "Man, they put out this record, and it has rope letters on it, and they put steel guitars and girl singles on every track. What can I do?" And he said, "Well, I suggest you start drinking, because <laughs> there's nothing you can do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's coming out." And so, uh, so I did. Yeah, about twenty years. You know, it it was. Uh, you wanted it to be right, and then it was just you know. And I can, I can, as I look back, I can understand their thinking in a way. I don't, I can accept it. You know, I don't approve it, but they were you know trying to sell records, and I was just trying to make a you know funky folk rock record. I guess. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, between 1978 and, and 1984, you released a couple of studio albums and a, and a live record, but then kind of disappeared as a recording artist for the better part of a decade before reemerging with uh, the Lost Train of Thought album in the early 1990s. I actually want to ask you about the song The Messenger from the follow-up record uh, Loco Gringo's Lament, which I recently saw you write about on Facebook as a song that represented a real artistic turning point for you. Talk about that song and how it's kind of set you on a new course that would define your career going forward. Well, uh, in, you know, after kind of the disappointment of those records, I, I was able to work in Texas as pretty much a bar band, you know, and I had really like, uh, for instance, and I could, I could do gigs. I could get, you know, had a reputation there where I could play all these gigs and like, well, for instance, uh, Jerry Jeff Walker's band, the Los Gonzo band, they left Jerry Jeff somewhere in the 80s and became my band, which uh, looking back on it, they just kind of wanted a different seat on the Titanic because I was, <laughs> I was going nowhere. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I played with Bugs Henderson, a great blues player there for a while, but I never could get the recording. But then, like I said, when I was uh, 41, I got clean and sober uh, but with uh, Stevie Ray and a fellow named B.C. came over and uh, got me into, uh, in, into recovery. And so somewhere in there around 42, I, I made a conscious decision that I wanted to be like a real songwriter. But in order to do that, I needed to learn to play guitar better, to get into finger picking, to get back into that Lightning Hopkins and Mance Lipscomb groove that I love, but I never could play it. And then somewhere in there, late one night after I, uh, I kind of just made this conscious decision or commitment or something that I was going to write songs, not to see what I could get, but to see what I could contribute, to see uh, if I could bring a smile to someone or if I could maybe uh, make them have a groove and they just feel good. And so rather than just going to write songs to, you know, like I say, try to get somebody to record them or cut them or anything like that. And so I kind of made that commitment. Someone gave me a book, Letters to a Young Poet, by a guy named Rilke. And there was a line in there about fear and, and what was on the other side of it. So I kind of paraphrased it into our fears are like dragons guarding our most precious treasures. We overcome these fears and there's these little treasures on the other side. So I read that and at age 42, I called up a fellow named Sam Swain. I said, well, you teach me how to finger pick hmm. and overcame that, overcame that fear of embarrassment. And then, so I started learning these little patterns and all of a sudden it, I wrote the messenger and it validated the real line, you know, that, that I overcame that fear of embarrassment, called up the guy, will you teach me how to finger pick, wrote this little, this little treasure. I have a mission and a small code of honor to stand and deliver by whatever measures. And the message I carry is by Rainier Maria Rilke. He said, I fears are like dragons guarding our most precious treasures. I am not looking for loose diamonds. Our pretty girls with crosses around their necks. I don't for roses or water. I'm not looking for God. I'm not looking for sex. And so the messenger has been very, uh, you know, that, that's, uh, 
know, the whole idea is like, I'm, I'm not looking for God. I'm not looking for sex. I'm not looking for wine. I'm not, I'm just here to tell you this. This is what I want to tell you. Our fears are like dragons, but our most precious treasure. Thank you. When I was 41, like I say, I got clean and sober. And then the thing at 42, it was a very, uh, uh, almost a, a psychic change in a way I had uh, a spiritual awakening is, and, uh, you know, not, and I prefer the term spiritual awakening to religious conversion. And so I tried to, you know, uh, try to live on certain spiritual principles and my life seemed to improve by doing that. Well, you re-recorded The Messenger on your 1999 album, Crusades of the Restless Nights, which also includes one of your now classic songs, Conversation with the Devil, about a dream where you died and went to hell. Well, it looked like I was going to be stuck here as far as I could tell. I thought I might as well suck up, you know, what the hell. I said, you know that song that Charlie Daniels did? About how you went down to Georgia and played fiddle against that kid. He said, yeah, it broke my heart, but, you know, what are you going to do? I said, to tell you the truth, I thought your solo was the better of the two. Well, then I woke up and I was lying in my bed. I ran upstairs and kissed my little boy on his sleeping head. I took this dream as a sign from God, so I thought I'd better pray. I said, don't ever speak to me directly, and thanks anyway. Now, so much has changed about me besides me just giving up red meat. Some get spiritual cause they see the light, and some cause they feel the heat. Well, as you know, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, songwriting is inspiration plus craft. You know, you get the inspiration, as you know, what songwriters call the great aha, you go. Aha, that'll be a good idea for a song. And then the craft is, is is knowing enough about music and the form of what do I do with this inspiration? What do I do with this great aha? Right. And so it's one of those weird things where I'd, someone had given me uh, the Divine Comedy, Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained, mm-hmm. by Dante. It was an old, from the 30s, and had all these wood carvings. Mm-hmm. Uh, prints in it and which i saw i was just reading that and it's way over my head but all of a sudden i was just kind of reading one night and then i went to sleep and actually kind of had that dream and so then i woke up and you know i had a dream last night and then kind of wrote the dream and i had some of these i guess punch lines that i just kind of kept in the back of my head you know like uh i, I didn't use the cocaine to get high just like the way it smelled <laughs> you know some get spiritual because they see a lot, some because they feel the heat, you know, and so I kind of had those lines, and so I just, I guess was, I woke up about two o'clock, and just with that, I had a dream last night, I was casting to hell by a jealous God, and then wow. I just started writing it, and the thing just kind of fell into place, except I wrote the last verse second. I mean, <laughs> I wrote that last verse just right away, and I knew that yeah. when some get spiritual because they see the light. So I knew that had to be the last verse. I knew that had to be the last line of the song. So that was kind of the, the craft of it. Sure. You know, it's, it's one of my things, too, is when you're talking about songwriting, one of my favorite quotes is from Flannery O'Connor. And as she said, never second-guess inspiration. You know, whenever you get, aha, you know, don't doubt that. Mm. You know, I mean, if, and so that's that's very important to me to to take that inspiration and write it 
and then you know go back and rewrite and edit yeah yeah that's wow. a great quote well you know as you know songwriting is a very mysterious process and uh but uh it's uh and, and some of these songs i just i look back you know now and i go did i really write that <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah i did you know <laughs> Well, another of your uh, classic songs is Screw You, We're From Texas, which was on your 2003 album, Growl. So screw you, we're from Texas. Screw you, we're from Texas. Screw you, we're from Texas. We're from Texas, baby. So screw you. That's a song that I would imagine takes on a certain energy in a live setting that transcends what can be captured on a recording. Um, and as somebody who is very much a, a live musician, um, talk about what role playing songs in front of an audience and, and trying songs out in front of an audience kind of hones your instincts as a songwriter in terms of figuring out what does and doesn't resonate with listeners. Well, that song there, I need to preface that song, but, you know, Screw You, We're From Texas, by saying the problem with irony is not everybody gets it, <laughs> right. you know. And it was kind of one of those things of just the idea of, like, Texas is, you know, it's it has a lot of ego, you know, involved and everything. And so, uh, and then there's a little dig in there about, you know, our corporations are cor- corrupt and our politicians are logo. So I put that little dig in there. Right. When I wrote it, it just kind of one of those things like I went, oh, my goodness. And when I took it to Gurf Morris to produce, I said, man, I got this song here. It's just kind of this this thing. And uh, he said, well, he said, well, if you record that and put that out there, it's going to be like trying to put a cat back in a sack. It's going to get scratched <laughs> up. It ain't going to go back in there once it's released. <laughs> right. And so it, it's one of those things. I mean, in Texas, of course, it's, uh, you know, sells a lot of t-shirts <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> but uh it you know and, and and it's one of those things too it comes back to the songwriting it is 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 uh don't doubt the inspiration i got it and i, I wrote it and i said well okay and if if people the other 49 states uh this you know get mad at me well i the chance I'm going to take, but <laughs> right. like I said, it does have a problem. But it, 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 as far as live, you know, it, it's I guess I've been starting off in folk music, and, and I feel very fortunate, like I say, early on to to seen Towns Van Zandt, and, and like so he had these incredible songs. But between songs, when when you know when he was starting out and younger, he was witty and charming, and and the same thing with Man Spliss. When between songs, they had this personality that that came through right and so that as far as performing live uh i you know uh, strap on that guitar and walk out and do it and it it's it's i don't really i kind of know what the first three songs are going to be and what the last three songs are going to be but then the middle part it kind of depends on the crowd Mm. kind of depends on the audience if they're really Rocking, you know, sweaty, all that stuff. Rocking, then I then we keep it pretty, pretty up tempo and everything. But sometimes, if it's more of a folk festival or a theater, we'll kind of ease into like the messenger, or dust of the chase, and 
so you know I feel fortunate that I have have a, a pretty good arsenal. Yeah, been doing it, doing it a while where I can kind of figure out what what works. You know, this is more of a, a general question, but do you typically write songs based on personal experiences and people you know, or do you tend to approach the craft more like uh, like a novelist who creates characters and tells stories that might just simply come from imagination? A lot of times it is. You, you, you put on a, a jacket or a persona, and, uh, you know, I, I suppose like a, an actor would uh, study a character and then try to become that character. Right. A lot of times I'll... Uh, you know, uh, take the guitar and and uh, and and I guess use my imagination and and and, and try to wear that songwriter, try right. to to wear him, right. to wear her, you know. And yeah. uh, I don't know that that's a difficult question, but I, 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 you know, like I say, I feel very fortunate that I can kind of uh, become adapt a different persona hmm. depending on what the song uh, needs. I can kind of put on a torn T-shirt and try to be Marlon Brando in a street car named Desire and try to get into that mindset. Or I can try to say, well, I am a a traveling poet trying to bring some light into these people. Or I can say, well, I am kind of a, a, you know, badass roots rocker. You know, that's the great thing about songwriting, about about inspiration is also the imagination. Yeah, you know, to uh, to be a you know um, a, a, a different person depending on what the song uh, needs sure. or, or wants. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the the mystical part of it because you you said what the song wants, not necessarily what you want the song to be. And there is something you know that a lot of writers talk about it's like the song is something that almost exists outside of themselves that they're trying to it's trying to reveal itself to them and they're trying to get the clear picture of it um and i think that's exactly maybe something that non-writers don't understand because it is it is mysterious well it is and that's exactly it i mean it's like the song will will, will almost tell you when it's done hmm. <laughs> Right, yeah. or, or or what works, you right. know, and, yeah. and it's, uh, I'll have a line and, and go back over it. I'll go to, a, you know, rhyming dictionary and get that line and look at it and see, and all of a sudden, wham, there it is. You go, ah, okay, next, and do it. Yeah, the song will will kind of dictate uh, when it's when it works. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I have to agree with you there. That, yeah, you got nailed that exactly. You know, arguably, your most popular song is Snake Farm from your 2006 album of the same name. What can you tell us about that song? Well, it's, it's kind of one of those things that is, getting back to Flannery O'Connor, never second guess inspiration. I mean, you know, there's an old snake farm in New Braunfels. It's between Austin and San Antonio. It's been there 40 years. I've probably driven by it 10,000 times, mm-hmm. I mean, in 40 years, just going. in. And one day, I drove by. And I looked over and I went, ooh. And I went, God, it just sounds nasty. And then I went, well, it is. It's a snake farm. And I went, it's a reptile house. And I went, ooh. And so then there it was, you know, I mean, the inspiration, I guess. And so I went, snake farm just sounds nasty. Snake farm, well, pretty much is. Snake farm's a reptile house. Snake farm, ooh. And I just went, whoa. Now that was the inspiration. Right. 
kind of craft is right. what do I do with it? Because <laughs> <Right. laughs> I, I had that little chorus thing going over my head. So then I said, well, the craft would be, I'll make this about a man who doesn't like snakes, but he's in love with a woman who works at the snake farm. Right. So then you think, well, what kind of woman works at the snake farm? <laughs> well, her name would be Ramona. She'd dance like Little Egypt. She'd drink malt liquor. She'd have a tattoo. She would like the alarm. Right. <laughs> which luckily rhymes with farm. <laughs> that's my favorite so, line in that. R- Ramona likes her malt liquor and a band from Wales that's called the alarm. It's, it's so, so specific. So I love that. Yeah, and, and well, I actually met Mike Peters in Austin, you know, uh, oh, wow. and, uh, and uh, had a chance to meet him. And he was he said, I've been all over the world. And people come up and say, you heard this Texas guy, Snake Farm Ramona? <laughs> you know, and he he's such a great guy. He was a laugh. But, you know, that was, you know, as a songwriting, that's I guess that's the craft of it. Yeah. You know, the, the inspiration plus craft, uh, and then each line kind of figured it out, and then I mean, each line kind of led to the next one, and and, and put it all together. Hmm. She cried when they broke up She still plays the records at the snake farm Snake farm, it just sounds nasty Snake farm, pretty much it Snake farm, it's a reptile house Snake farm Like with that line about the alarm, it's so specific and it makes it really striking and you have this knack for painting visual scenes with your lyrics another great example being drunken poet's dream from 2010 and and i love the line there's some money on the table and a pistol on the floor a few paperback books by louis l'amour whiskey bottles are scattered like last night's clothes with cigarettes and papers and oreos i mean it's just you you can see it you know and that that's a song that you co-wrote with with Hayes Carl, who's another great Texas right. songwriter. In terms of the the craft part of it, as you say, do you approach that differently when you're collaborating, you know, working with another writer than you do when, say, you're just off by yourself working on a song? Well, uh, yeah, and in a way, that particularly happened. Hayes called me up and said, "I got this line for this song. You want to write it?" And I said, "Yeah, sure." So I went over to his apartment. I walked in, he said, I've had this line for I don't know how long, and I can't get the second line. I go, what is it? He says, I said, I've, I've got a woman wild as Rome. I said, she likes being naked and gazed upon. <laughs> and so he said, okay. So then we wrote it about, it's, it's almost about the woman being, you know, that this kind of a woman who's with this drunken poet. And so we sat down and we kind of wrote the first verse in the chorus, and I think I had to explain to him what mescaline was. <laughs> you know, it rhymes with gasoline, so I'm going to give me some mescaline and I'll rhyme it with gasoline. That's what a, a drunken poet would do, right? And he goes, yeah. Said, you know, he wouldn't take it. He would rhyme it. <laughs> you know, and we just had this, you know, banter going back and forth. So I think we wrote the first verse, of course, and maybe the second verse. And we kind of, uh, I had to leave, so we kind of kept in touch. And then he called me up and said, hey, man, I, I wrote, finished the song, and I put a bridge in it. And I said, nah, I don't want to sing a bridge. And so, but to answer your question, uh, writing with someone else is, it's, 
I, I, I didn't used to do it a lot, but now I, I really enjoy it. Yeah. You know, like, first off, you get with somebody like Slade Cleese, and, and we said, you, you go, okay, I'm going to write. What if I say a line that goes, that sucks? And you go, oh, you know, you're, well, you know, you'll, you'll wither up. <laughs> But it's still, I guess I've learned that it doesn't, it, it's not going to work like that, that both songwriters are going to know when the line works. If I put out a line, I go, no, that's not it. You know, and so um, I, I guess I've learned that. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the co-write, the collaboration, that it still comes down to the song is, is going to tell you right. which line works. And a lot of times you kick it around and... Um, you know, and back and forth, and also it'll it, 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 it'll happen. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I want to know the background on "Tell the Devil I'm Getting There as Fast as I Can" from your 2017 album of the same name. Tell the devil that I'm getting there as fast as I can. Then a sunburst gives sun in an all country band. And loving a woman who can outcuss any man. Tell the devil that I'm getting there as fast as I can. Well, that's 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 my rock and roll fable, you know. And uh, it's kind of one of those things I say where, you know, it's meant to be taken, you know, metaphorically. You know, that I'm an old guy. You know, say, well, Ray, you're getting old you go well tell the devil i'll get there as fast as i can just you know kind of a throwaway line and then uh but then you know playing a sunburst gibson in an alt-country band loving a woman who can outcuss any man which those are you know really close to the truth i mean of my life mm-hmm. you know i play an old gibson in this funky band with my son and a drummer and then judy my wife she can you know really turn a phrase <laughs> <laughs> and so i had kind of had that chorus and then i said well i needed to make it make it about you know kind of the old bob seger song turn the page uh, you know the, the the musician the idea right. of it and i feel very fortunate like i say to have eric church and lucinda sing on that i mean that was just uh an added uh, bonus that they would do that yeah, so i sure. give the song a the right vibe, you know. Right, right. Still important to me. Each song has to have a, a vibe that just feels cool. Right, sure. You know, speaking of Eric Church, uh, I know that you guys collaborated on the title track of his 2018 album Desperate Man, and um, you know that's a really cool, uh, just a cool thing with it. You know, Eric, of course, his career has just blown up in the last. A uh, few years, but you're seeing more of you know guys like Eric Church championing you. And then in 2009, this album came out called "The Messenger," a tribute to Ray Wiley Hubbard. And you know you've got all these other songwriters: James McMurtry, Ray Benson, you know Bobby Bear, and you know Radney Foster, Tom Russell, Rodney Crowell. All these great writers who are kind of recognizing and acknowledging your influence uh, on them. Talk about that experience of kind of getting to that point in your career where now people are sort of putting you up as the songwriting hero. Well, I mean, it's uh, 
incredibly flattering, but also it's very humbling. I mean, these people that I got so much respect for that they would do that. I mean, it just, I mean, Brian Atkinson put that together, and, and I just kind of, you know, didn't really have that much to do with these. He just called them up, and they started asking them about me, and it was just, when it came out, it was just really, uh, I, mean, I don't know, it was something I didn't expect, and uh, it, it really is, I guess about six years ago, my wife, Judy and I were watching Criminal Minds. I get this text from Ronnie Dunn, who I'd met, and, and he said, Eric Church just name-dropped you in a song called Mr. Misunderstood at the CMA Awards. Hmm. So I said, Judy, Eric Church just mentioned me in a song. So my wife goes, well, we're not changing the channels till Spencer finds the serial killer. <laughs> and I went, well, so the next day I had to hear this song, Mr. Misunderstood. And it was mentioned, you know, Elvis Costello, Jeff Twitty, and me. And I went, wow, because I never met him. Yeah. And then uh, he, he, uh, uh, his office called and said, well, why don't you come up to Dallas and sing Screw You Were from Texas with him. And so I went up there and met Eric. And I said, how did they end up in that song? He said, they were writing it on the turntable was Elvis and Jeff Twitty and me. And he said, let's write that. Hmm. And he said he'd been a, uh, a fan of mine back, back since Loco Gringos. So then I called him up and I said, would you sing uh, on Tell the Devil? And he said, sure. And he calls me up and he says, I want to write this song with you called Desperate Man. So I'm just being a smart ass, right? So I go, well, one time I was so desperate, I went to a fortune teller to get my future read. And she said I didn't have one. <laughs> you know, just being a smart ass. Right. So he says, okay, we'll make that the last verse. <laughs> I went, well, okay. So I went up there and met him and he said he had the groove and we wrote the desperate man and then i mean wow and he said i think i'm gonna cut this i'm gonna call it the title of my album i went well sure you know like that and all of a sudden he did and i was just wow and then he called me up to be in the video and then he came to texas when they introduced me and inducted me into the texas of texas heritage songwriter hall of fame thing and uh he's just been a great guy great cheerleader for me amazing that uh, that these guys you know like say Rodney and Ray and Hayes and McMurtry that they would you know say say what they did about me I mean it's very flattering and humbling and and uh, and then but now then I gotta earn it <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I can't I gotta oh no I gotta I gotta I gotta try now. I gotta really, <laughs> you know what I mean. I, so can't rest uh, on your laurels so now. <laughs> no, I gotta keep going. Yeah, yeah. Keep striving to to learn new things. That was another mm. thing too. Just getting back to the songwriting thing. Back when I was, I learned finger picking at forty two. Then I learned open tunings, and then I learned slide. And then I got a mandolin, and by learning new things, that gives the song 
a door to come through that wasn't there before. Right. You know what I mean? And like if I hadn't learned open detuning, I wouldn't have got, I don't know, Ask God, uh, Course Eden Bottle or any of these songs. So that's that's the thing that I've, that I've learned about song songcraft too, that by learning new things to, to let the song come through, give, them, give the song a, a new door. Well, coming back to the new album, which is called Co-Starring, I'd love to hear about the song Bad Trick, which features quite a team, Ringo Starr, Joe Walsh, Don Was, and Chris Robinson of the Black Crows, all on that one track. Tell us how that opportunity came together to assemble an all-star team. Well, what happened was is I had a rough gig. Uh, the sound was really squealy. It was just one of those kind of, wasn't a very good gig, and I came back. When I drove off, you know, got back about three or four in the morning, and Judy goes, how was it? And I go, man, it was a rough gig. And all of a sudden she goes, well, everybody turns a bad trick every now and then. <laughs> and I just went, huh. And so we just kind of threw lines together. And then I met Ringo up in um, L.A. about six years ago. I was playing at McCabe's, and this fellow named Brent Carpenter came by, and he said he uh, did all Ringo's videos. He said Ringo's playing the Greek theater, and like to meet me so i went out there and met ringo and it was just we just you know it's he's a beetle but still he's he's right. so gracious and fun and and we just kind of hit it off and so we um went up to his radio city music hall for his birthday party which when mccartney showed up which is an incredible night about two years ago june and i uh, saw the all-stars in uh in austin and uh i think it's Austin, yeah and, and so we were backstage just talking he said what are you doing I said, well, I'm I'm just getting ready to make a record. He said, well, if you need a drummer, let me know. <laughs> I thought he was being gracious. But then Judy gave me that, that song. We wrote that song together, and it was just had this groove. So I sent it to Brent Carpenter. I said, Ringo said he might play drums on it. So Brent said, well, I'll play it for him. And so then I get this text says uh, from Ringo. says, be out in uh, L.A. next Wednesday. It's about six, seven, about, about, about maybe a year ago. Yeah. Next Wednesday, I played drums on it. So I flew out there and went to his house, and he has this great little studio there at his house, and we uh, he played drums on the track. Wow. I have this really evil thing that I did. I left two holes in it, hoping that he would do the drum fills from Get Back. <laughs> <laughs> you know? When I was recording, I said, well, if he said he's going to do it, what about if I, boom, leave this diamond, you know, right. maybe he'll do these drum fields. And he did. <laughs> nice. And it was just, uh, those drum fields just killed me. Bobby Penn, and everybody turns a bad trick now and then. You got to have some scars if you want to be a poet. To get weeds out of a garden, you got to hold it. Position with the ten. We'll get you five to ten. And everybody turns a finished the song and he said who's you going to get to play bass and i said i don't really know he said how about don was and i said i don't i don't really know him i said i've met him once he's well i'll ask him and he said who's going to play guitar and i went uh, and he said i'll ask my brother-in-law <laughs> i went oh okay sure and so he did i got joe and, and don and then i'll send a ring to chris in austin 
And I said, hey, man, you know, because Chris, I mean, Chris has the most incredible rock and roll voice. Yeah. And I said, hey, man, will you sing on this? And he said, sure. So we sent him the track, and he sang on it. And I think in some back room in some club in Dusseldorf or something, <laughs> some weird thing. Right. And uh, uh, pretty, you know, I'm pretty uh, amazed. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, the new uh, record is fantastic. Lots of great songs, lots of great uh, guests, and it's very cool to uh, see a label like Big Machine uh, doing something hmm. with a, an independently-minded artist. I guess the only uh, thing now is all the great little barbed lines about Nashville you've written in uh, in, in your songs <laughs> over the years. You know, now, now somebody might question your cred. I don't uh. know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I guess it's, uh, I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm not really selling out. I'm like buying in. You know, I'm, trying to, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I've, I've raised the ante. Right. So now I'm going to try to, try to <laughs> but no, I mean, I guess in the past, you know, I've, I've kind of felt that. But, uh, you know, the thing is, I I love that stuff. I've, I've meant, you know, ironically or sarcastically, you know, I mean, I've got, I've, you know, got great friends in Nashville forever. You know, I used to go up there and hang out with, with Tony Joe and just, uh, yeah. you know, and all those cats. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, maybe so. Maybe maybe you caught me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, it's pretty cool when, uh, when Nashville uh, recognizes uh, an independently-minded writer mm-hmm. and something that uh, is outside the box. I think yeah. that's uh, great. So I think it's very cool that uh, Big Machine is uh, is putting this record out. Yeah. And uh, it's especially at this point in your career, I just think it's very uh, cool honor and recognition to show how important and influential your songwriting has been. So uh, congratulations yeah. uh, on a great project. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you. Like I say, take care. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. To hear an exclusive bonus clip of Ray Wiley Hubbard talking about Outlaw Blood, his collaboration with Ashley McBride on his new album, Co-Starring, please visit us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting our potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. You can also sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And if you'd like, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And finally, be sure to check out our friends at the American Songwriter Podcast Network at americansongwriter.com. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. Ramona's got a keen sense of humor. She got a tattoo down her arm. It's a python. Eating a little mouse wearing a sailor hat that says snake farm. Snake farm. It just sounds nasty. Snake farm. Pretty much is snake farm. It's a reptile house. Snake farm.